Hi, welcome to Culturally Determined. I'm your host, R.A. Conwade, and my guest today is Joanna Mang. Uh, Joanna, could you please introduce yourself? Hi, I am a past and future guest of the show. Sometimes I write stuff, but not that often. Uh, thank you so much for coming back on the show. So our topic today is the HBO limited series, The Rehearsal, which uh, had a six episode run and finished about three weeks ago when we're taping this. But I've had continued to think about it since then. And there was a lot of people writing reactions to it. And it seemed like most people really liked it, but were also like, this is insane. How did this end up on TV? I can't believe this exists. So we're going to be talking about it in a couple different ways, but I guess I'll I have just... a question to start off. Yes. Do you relate to Nathan Fielder's character on that show? Well, I mean, in some ways I do, but it, in other ways, the character is so purposely alienating and, you know, it's sort of like, I don't know, it, he's acting as though he's a robot or, <laughs> you know, is has no understanding of human emotion. And right. so there's that. But so let, let's just back up. So Nathan Fielder is a comedian. He's Canadian. He's most well known for the show Nathan for You that was on Comedy Central that I think ran for three seasons and wrapped up. No, longer than three. Four? Really short seasons. But okay. it, yeah. Okay, there's a, there's a 50 or so episodes. Yeah. And it wrapped up a couple of years ago. And that show was a kind of comedic reality show that was had some parts that were sort of like Borat and some parts that were sort of like Bar Rescue or another show where someone is coming in to like fix a small business, but it was sort of a parody of a reality show. And the conceit was that Nathan Fielder playing a version of himself was a business expert and he would go to small businesses in the greater Los Angeles area. They're having some problem and he would offer a solution that was totally insane and then they would do it and comedy would usually ensue. And the, so the solutions, you know, so in the first episode, there's a pizza place that has a, you know, if, if the pizza is not delivered in 30 minutes, you get a second free one. And, and he says the, uh, his solution, you know, for these people to increase their business is offer it. Say, if you, if we don't get it to you in eight minutes, you'll get a second pizza. And, and the proprietor says, that's insane. It's impossible to deliver a pizza in eight minutes. And Nathan's solution is, well, the second pizza, the free one will be miniature. So it's about the size of like an Oreo cookie. And it comes in a tiny little box. And people will be so delighted by this that they'll want to like order pizza more often. So they actually do it and they make these realistic, you know, actual edible <laughs> tiny little pizzas, like smaller than a pizza bagel. And then they show them delivering it to people. It's all, it's takes more than eight minutes. And the people says, where's my free pizza? And they're shown this tiny little pizza. And of course, they're all mad. And some of them threaten with, um, the delivery person with violence. So his ridiculous schemes always, basically always fail, but they go off in all sorts of strange directions. Well, and that's, then, his, that's his bit that his character, his character believes that people will love this. And then is always surprised by the way things turn out. Like the gas rebate one where you have to climb to the top of the mountain to file the rebate. And, you know, he's like, I was so surprised that there were people that wanted to do this. And then I was so surprised that there were people that wanted to stick around because they they wanted, you know, to save $12 on gas, right? Like, of course, going into it, he, Nathan Fielder himself, the director, would have known that people would do it. Of course, they're they're banking on 
being able to fill a van full of people who want to do that. But his character has to maintain this constant surprise. And I, I was listening to an old interview with him on the Chris Hardwick podcast where he was talking uh, talking about Nathan for you. And he was saying that his main goal with the show is for every ending, every episode to be surprising. He doesn't want it ever to feel redundant. Like it's a formula where, okay, he goes into the business and then he offers a solution and then this happens and then you laugh. Like he always wants it to feel fresh and like something is happening that you didn't expect. He seems terrified of boring his audience hmm. and he seems really transparent about that unless on that podcast he was doing a character who is describing his show because of course with him you never know which layer of reality you're residing in right yes, yes. and it's so it's there's an andy kaufman-esque aspect to his persona where he's he plays himself in nathan to you and in this new show What's the end? It's Andy Kaufman meets Charlie Kaufman, right? It's like there's a lot of Charlie Kaufman, especially. In I don't zones. know if he's kidding or not, and I don't know what level of reality I'm on, and if any of this is is serious right now. But as the audience, you are required to take it seriously. Okay, have you seen Mulholland Drive? Yes, but years ago. Okay, you know where the part where they're in the theater and the band leader, the guy is like, "No, I bandai. Like, there's no band here. It's all fake." And mm -hmm. they're like, okay. And then the woman gets up and she starts singing "Crying" by Roy Orbison, and it sounds so real. And then like she like drops dead, and the singing keeps going. It's every time you watch it, it's surprising because you're like, even though he told us that wasn't her singing, it looks so realistic, and that's what movies and TV are like, right? Like even if they tell you this isn't real, you still you you still get into it so quickly and then they can pull the rug on out underneath from you even when they tell you like david lynch did i'm doing this to you look at me i'm about to pull the rug mm -hmm. that's what nathan fielder is so good at even when you know that it's not real it takes just a few seconds for you to get um invested and to to not be able to figure out what's real and what isn't like yeah whether whether angela in the rehearsal is actually an actress like i don't think that she is there's all this debating i think that's kind of it's not the point anyway but i don't think that she is but when you're watching it the effect is really the same whether she's an actress or she isn't okay the point of her is how nathan plays off of her sorry i'm going like five different directions okay but just to back up for all okay so for people you know that's the background nathan fielder the show was a cult hit and has gained admirers i i most i think i almost entirely watched it after it had gone off the air you know just watching reruns and and so more and more people were like oh this guy is sort of a deranged genius like this stuff he's doing is re really off the wall but you know in on nathan for you it seemed like like most of the things that were happening were real in the sense that reality television is real. The people all knew they were on a TV show and they willingly signed up to be on a TV show. They were sort of led to believe that it would be a standard reality TV show where they would get like a business expert to come in and end up being this wacky guy. So there's a Borat-like aspect to it. Less cruelty, I think. Um, but sometimes there was some cruelty in, in the original show. He would bring in actors like in the smoking one the the smokers allowed bar like he goes and he hires actors to yes. play which is really like him warming up for the rehearsal right it's basically the same a very similar situation right and and all, but, and his and he's also Nathan Fielder the real life human is also doesn't give a lot of interviews and is very um you know doesn't say a lot 
or maybe he's become more like media shy as his popularity has grown and he doesn't like need to promote himself as much but no he doesn't say a lot in his interviews i've listened to a couple of them okay the line between the character him doing a bit and him being a real person is somewhat ambiguous and yeah because he doesn't say a lot and his and his persona is very sort of like unemotional and everything he says sounds like a joke and it's always and it's funny it's just funny because he's so deadpan. Yeah, so. it's extre- extremely deadpan. And he's and in the show, in the original Nathan for you, you know, he's doing these absurd things and he, and he never breaks. There's like one or two moments where something so crazy happens, you see him start to laugh. But like, he seemingly throws himself into these crazy real life situations, most of which he creates himself. And other people are like, you know, they don't understand <laughs> what is happening. And he's just committing to this bit very strongly. Okay, so then... This new show that just aired on HBO. This is really the first thing he's done since Nathan for You ended, and it's called The Rehearsal. And it, the initial okay, so the initial setup is that Nathan Fielder on his original show, he wanted to anticipate every possible thing that could happen when he was interacting with real people, not actors. And so he would like came up with like the Fielder method of rehearsing beforehand and hiring an actor to play a real person and going through all the possible scenarios of how people would react. So he could anticipate every possible, you know, (laughs) every possible eventuality and plan for it. And so he would know what to do and know what lines to say when he's interacting with a real human. Um, Did you, did you have a sense that this, okay. What what was your sense of like the reality of this, you know, sort of in the beginning, like, do you think there is a a fielder method (laughs) at, at all? Or what do you think? Like that he himself is doing that? Yeah, I mean, do you think he really was ever? And so he comes in as like the expert in this idea of simulating a scenario so that you'll be prepared when it happens. And it's very elaborate. And he has this like software that's like a decision tree sort of thing that you can go along. And if this happens, if someone says this, you follow this path sort of thing. And he's wearing a laptop on a harness. It's very silly looking, but I don't know. His character is in this show is someone who thinks there's a correct way of doing things. And then if you can kind of hack the correct way of doing things, then you can have a life that has meaning and that you can have real relationships with somebody with other people and that this will be like it's like he he envies people he says in one part like i envy people their ability to just believe and he envies people their ability to have connections with other people or to just have certainty about like should i have kids should i you know like be or how should i be around other people some people just know and and that's real right like there are people who really feel that way there are people who it comes easier to and people who it's harder for yeah um, and then he's just taking it to an extreme where he's a person who has somehow found enough power to engineer situations where he can that he can control mm-hmm. um and then but then to make it like I said, surprising and not boring because it would be boring to just watch someone be like a puppet master or a Willy Wonka, like core in the show calls them. Mm-hmm. Like he's not Willy Wonka because he, his character then has to become the victim of his own machine and constantly be questioning himself, which is what makes the show interesting and fun to watch, right? It's why you keep watching it because you're watching him try to figure out how to run this device that he's become stuck in. Okay, yes, a crazy, yeah, crazy contraption that he's engineered almost entirely 
himself with this, he's assembled this crazy team. Okay, so then, so that's the, the premise. And then in the first episode, they find this guy who is embarrassed because he, he's really, he's crazy about bar trivia. And this guy, his bar trivia team, everyone else in the team had a master's degree and he did not. And for some reason he decided to lie saying he did have a master's degree and kept this lie for a decade. And now he's ready to confess. And um, so the way to do this is to, create an exact replica of the actual bar where this confession is going to take place and practice it multiple times with actors portraying both the person who is confessing to and like the bartender, the other patron and stuff. And it's, so that's the initial premise and it's totally absurd. And you're like, they recreated this actual bar in a warehouse and you're sort of just like struck by, wow, this is such an insane idea. And HBO really did spend all the money to, like recreate this bar. And he said it um that one of the one of the people building it told him that it probably costs more to build the replica bar than it would to build that actual bar. Okay. They didn't elaborate on why. I'd be really curious to hear why. Um, that's it that's interesting. Okay. And I'm sure uh, well, I mean, they had you know when they're building like, the with like plumbing or I don't know have getting it to that space whereas having it already set up yeah. yeah, and you know, the the fake bar and then okay. So at this point, if you're interested in if you haven't seen the show and you're interested in it, I would say just go check it out, watch the first episode, and then see if if you're into it and then keep going because really the it's sort of in some way like the show is full of crazy spoilers and crazy twists in almost every episode. The premise is changed or inverted in some strange way. But it seemed like after so after watching this first episode, I was like, wow, this is insane. It's sort of like Synecdoche, New York, the Charlie Kaufman movie, or The Remainder, which is this weird novel by Tom, someone that came out like 10 or 15 years ago about a guy who gets a lot of money because of something that fell from an airplane hits him in the head. And then he wants to like recreate this exact scene that he envisions and live it over and over and over again. So it's a little bit like that. It's very weird postmodern. And then you think, okay, this is gonna be like Nathan for you, or he's finding a different person each episode and spending all this money to create a ridiculous scenario, and it's very silly and weird things are going to happen. But that's not quite what happens. It, it takes various weird turns. So I was, you know, at the end of each episode, you're like, this is insane. Like, it's seemingly, it's like a different show now, because he ends up, you know, <laughs> he ends up moving in with this woman who is is like sort of set up as the next person, and her dilemma is not this seemingly extremely trivial thing about, lying to <laughs> lying to the quiz um teammates but it's that she she's uh isn't sure whether she wants to adopt a child and so she's going to play out what it would be like to raise a child from age zero to 18 with different child actors coming in every like both like every four hours because you can't have like really small children as actors for labor law but also the chat the, the child would be aging up every week or so and so there would be like six versions anyway. And so that this is, seems like suddenly the, the 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 stakes from being like the most minor thing possible are suddenly like, you know, a very important decision in someone's life, whether or not to have kids. So then it seems like, okay, this is changing entirely. And then it ends up that he moves in and, and with the woman and is now like a central, much more central participant and is no longer just the puppet master figure. What, he's now, he's, he's now the main character. What I thought was so good about it, what what part of what made it so funny was like in the first episode with the bar trivia guy, he treated that very seriously. Like he like, okay, I'm a bar trivia person. Yes, I, I, I'm just putting together now that you yourself are a trivia master. When he when he's asking him about like 
you know, about bar trivia and when he like suggests like the idea of, of cheating and that, you know, the guy's like, oh, you know, absolutely not. You know, that, that doesn't have, you know, it's, he says it's sacrosanct, you know, which is of course totally accurate. Nobody would, you don't cheat. That's not a thing. And like then like the guilt that he feels or that his character allegedly feels at, you know, covertly feeding core the trivia answers, um, and how seriously his character takes that as like a, that would be a betrayal. I mean, he's taking that dumb little situation as seriously as he does like the raising the child with his Jewish faith situation. It's like yes. every social situation is an unknown and a puzzle and utterly terrifying no matter what it is. And so you're, we're just following him along on these different like we're watching him go to this from the stupid thing to the really serious thing. And we're like, oh, how will he act? Oh, the same. And it's funny every time watching him be that serious about things that are all of different levels of seriousness, which a normal person would be able to navigate. But the, the conceit of the show is that Nathan doesn't know that. Like we're watching the show, the audience knows that there's no one mistake you made in a conversation that derailed it and ruined your relationship with someone or ruined it. It's, it. That's not how life works. There's not like one thing you could have said differently. The conceit of the show is that Nathan, the character doesn't know that. And so we have to watch him try to endlessly recreate situations, knowing that there's nothing that he can do to control something as uncontrollable as the way two people interact with each other. Mm -hmm. um, and you watch him just never learn that lesson, which is, which is funny. And it's, I mean, it's why it's cringe and it's why it's, uh, you know, frustrating and everything. And there are other things about the show that are like deeply uncomfortable and get into like an ethical thing, which I guess we can talk about like the, the child yeah. actor thing, the ethics of using child actors. Yeah. So, okay. So I just did a binge rewatch of the whole series. And I mean, it's interesting to watch the second time because a lot of it is these twists that come out of nowhere. Um, like him moving in with the woman, you know, was like, that's a crease to us. I did not see that coming at all. And so when I know everything that's coming, I'm, there's less of a shock value. <laughs> I'm more like looking at the strange details and just the oddness of it. So it was it was definitely less funny the second time, but there was some stuff I did pick up on. But it was like, you know, what is this? What is this thing about? And there's like a dozen or more things you could say it's about. So it's about reality TV. It's about acting in Hollywood. It's about solipsism and whether you can know another person. It's about anti-Semitism. It's about parenting and raising a child it's yeah the ethics of child actors um and the ethics of sort of like acting in general and you know an actor um feeling like emotions versus a real person feeling emotions and also about the ethics of, of viewing like he loves the idea of people who are watching and being watched and he loves to create situations where people are audiences and the observed and I, I think when, when people talk about like his show, like about Nathan for you being exploitative um, and of like, it's specifically like exploiting immigrants, like the maid service episode. Yeah, so a lot, so I mean, it's, it's one of the interesting things about the show is you see how many like um, first generation immigrants run small businesses in right, that's greater just Los Angeles area. Of you're going into small businesses in greater Los Angeles. Yeah, which so you is, see it, which is a very diverse area. A lot of people who you don't usually see on 
TV or reality TV. Yeah, even like the gas station owner guy. I don't know what country he's from. He seems Middle Eastern. Um, and, you know, he's first generation. So like, I don't think that he's seeking out first generation immigrants specifically to make fun of him. I think it, them, I think it was more a function of, you're talking about small businesses in LA. Right. Um, but the idea that he's exploiting them or that he's exploiting the child actors. Yeah, I, I mean, in the initial run, it was like that these people are not in on the joke and and they're the butt of the joke. And yeah, there was this- like in, in the rehearsal where the child actor, like it seems like the child actor bonded to him and then it does, he doesn't have a dad. And so you're like, you're seeing him cry and have a hard time separate truth from reality. I mean, here's the thing, like obviously watching that and I, you know, having little kids, I'm like, I'm very uncomfortable. I'm like, I don't like that this mom put her kid in that situation. At the same time, I empathize with the fact that she's a single mom and this is a way to make money that would be hard to turn down. I've never been in her situation. So that's different. It's easy for me to be like, just don't do it. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, so, but I also watching it, I'm thinking about, well, I watch tons of shows with child actors in them, and I rarely think about the work conditions. Whereas this show is telling, is talking about the legal hours they're allowed to work. It's showing you the parents behind the scene. It's showing you the intake process. It's discussing, it's forcing you to think about child employment in the, the TV industry in a way that no other show does. And yeah. so to, to pick on this show as being exploitative um, is really just me trying to make myself feel better for watching any show with child actors in it. Like you can say in the abstract, oh, child acting and getting your kids into acting, like that's creepy. Why would I want to be a stage parent? But like, obviously we need them to make TV look realistic. Yes. And shows it- like have, trying to dress up the teenager like a six-year-old is, uh, it takes you out of the moment. You know? Right. And, you know, at least me, the first time, so he's, most of the action unfolds in rural Oregon. And um, at least in the initial time I was watching it, I was thinking like, okay, all these child actors, you know, they, they like, you know, they brought them from Hollywood or something. And so sort of like the parents know, that, you know, like know what's happening, but then there's this turn in the final episode where you see that there's, you know, you, you go behind the scenes or something with one child actor and the mother and who's the, the child is six years old named Remy. And he seemingly is bonded with Nathan is maybe somewhat confused about the difference between fake and real, which is something the entire show is playing with. And yeah, it becomes an indictment of the entire thing, but there's all these layers to it. So one thing is they didn't have to include this at all. They could have cut the Remy stuff entirely if they felt bad about it or felt that it would you know, show Nathan or HBO in a negative like they just could not included that whatsoever. So they included it on purpose. And so there it's a self-indictment in some ways, but then it's also like Nathan, you know, the fact that they're showing their dirty laundry is is like, oh, like, yeah, Nathan's better than the standard like child actor sort of thing on Disney Channel, you know. So it's like they're having their cake and eating it too or something. I mean, maybe. I don't know. It, it all, that all depends on how the audience receives it. Cause yeah, he goes to Remy's house and they live in this little um little like like a tract house not even like a tract house i mean it looked like a cross between a bungalow and a trailer um and very very simple and basic and you know his mom is not some like you know stay-at-home leisure stage mom who's just sort of carting him off to like auditions for fun it's like she seems like she needs the money um, it's, it's sort of unclear you know uh, they don't tell us why 
you know, was this his first acting gig or why she wanted to do this sort of thing to begin it's, with? It, to me, it just seemed like she needed the money. I, I, that was just the sense that, mm-hmm. that I got. And not that she was like, like putting him to work to make money for her, but kind of like, well, here's an opportunity that we got. And I think he would be good at it. And he seems like he would have fun and he did have fun. So I'm just trying here. Like, um, it's, it yeah, just the mom like- is a very sympathetic figure. And, she and- is. I mean, I, you can tell sometimes she she comes off a little phony also. I, I couldn't tell if maybe it was because she was nervous and she felt guilty about how her son was acting. Sometimes when your kid is acting in a way that doesn't reflect well on you, you kind of like, like tense up. Uh-huh. And it's not like, you know, it's like, it's, you, you don't want to be like, you know, oh, my kid's behavior was a reflection of me, but it still feels that way. And you feel like people are judging you and then you kind of like, you get tense and everything. I got that vibe from her. Mm, okay. That was why she was coming off as kind of phony. Okay, well, she's uh, not, she doesn't come across as a, as a standard stage mom and yeah. And- no, and so that that whole thing, like going to their house and I know like in the Nathan's shows, like they shoot so much footage. They shoot tons of footage and they have to decide then later what story they're going to tell, right? They don't know what the narrative is going to be until later in post-production when they're stitching it together. So yeah, they didn't have to show it. And then the fact that they decided to was, you know, they not just to be like, oh, here's the criticism of child labor, which is probably not, you know, not the main reason. It was because it fit in with the story of Nathan's guilt about Nathan, the character, his guilt about doing the show. Right. That the whole thing was like, I, I don't know how to relate to people. And then I try something. And then if they don't end up liking it, then I feel guilty. And he said that about Nathan for you, too. He said, like, you know, when people if I find out that people are uncomfortable, like I feel really bad because I my point is for it to be like more fun. And the idea that I would have caused harm is really upsetting to me. And I buy that from him. I don't think that he's because the only alternative is that he's a sociopath. And I don't think this show would work if you were a sociopath. I think you need a person who right. really feels deeply. Well, okay. So in the first, you know, in the first episode with the Willy Wonka thing, you know, um, Core, the guy in the first episode, the you know, the real person said something like, you know, you're like Willy Wonka. And Nathan is like, Willy, like, Willy Wonka, I don't really remember the story. And, you was know. Was he the bad guy? <laughs> yeah. And he's like, was well, he the bad guy? And then, you know, of course, like, well, you know, it's sort of complicated, but, you know, you created a world of pure imagination for me or something. You're, you're making dream worlds come true. Mm-hmm. And then at the very end of the episode, um, the song from Willy Wonka um, that is escaping Mary Alice starts playing. And the that pure is, imagination. Yes, pure um, imagination. Pure and but it, it's sort of a, it's very like sinister moment of like, oh, and. And then immediately before that, you had this scene that actually I read that some people didn't catch it the first time that they they intercut Nathan confessing um, that he had like helped like plant the the answers, the trivia contest in Core's subconscious. And then you see that it's actually the actor who was playing Core in the initial like pre-rehearsal and and then it it cuts and you see him like freaking out and being like how do you do this is such a betrayal and then so you see that nathan does not tell core that um you know he helped him win and he just tells the actor playing him yes and then core is happy but then of course the real core is going to find out about this eventually because it's when he watches the show film for tv yeah so there's all these is nathan is nathan 
like evil sort of you know an evil mastermind or no no i think that was the joke is that he's so cowardly he couldn't tell the real core so he he did he went ran it through with the actor yeah he saw how bad it it could go and so he did it has the actor lay into him and be like show me worst case scenario and then he decides well i i'm not gonna i can't handle that so we're just not gonna risk it at all knowing that he's like you know core will watch this uh alone in his living room and i won't have to be there for the fallout like right, that's but, the joke right yeah but you, but you could say that Willy wonka is a sociopath because he you know tortures children in, in his candy factory and also enslaves a race of quasi-human sure. um so so the fact that that parallel is drawn extremely explicitly in the first episode is like and he's is- an asshole Willy wonka is an asshole nathan filter is not an asshole he's that's not his his character is too like dumb for that yeah too ineffective i mean it's weird because he's this behind the scenes mastermind and is ordering like teams of you know master like builders and prop people and cameramen to assemble the stuff and create all these crazy situations and then when he's on camera he's like extremely reserved um seemingly like barely moves around very withdrawn um so that's another another weird um contrast that's part of it um I mean, yeah, so there's so many weird directions this goes into, and really, this is so the the reason I wanted to talk about this is like I I don't I've never seen anything or absorbed anything any like you know fictional work that's like this before. It has these antecedents like Charlie Kaufman world and and stuff, but like I I was blown away by this and couldn't believe that it is it, it exists. I was gonna say I've never seen a show that went so deeply into like the practical aspects of making TV. Like when he talks about like having people sign release forms or like showing them the release form, like when he's talking to, um, it's the lawyer, which episode was it where he's, he's in the lawyer's office and he's like, you actually signed this. And he's showing him the right. form, right. like jumps across the desk to try to get it back. For, oh, the dumb Starbucks, the dumb Starbucks episode. <laughs> he's trying to get a lawyer to help him do that. But so he, he they he's very upfront and then he'll talk about like you know he shows and like the the person like the shows the lawyer is clearly talking to his producer who's off screen he's not looking at the correct camera he doesn't edit that out um and then talking about like funding and budgets like with the rehearsal like you know he's telling us like oh hbo paid for this which is funny that's what the joke right like i can't believe hbo paid to move my bar across the, <laughs> yes. bar across the country and like we spent $15,000 building an underground tunnel to the outside, you know, but he's constantly like bringing us like, this is a TV show. You're watching a TV show. It's on HBO. And you talking about like the, the benefits of having like the, I can never remember how to pronounce this word, the imprimatur of, of HBO mm-hmm. as like you draw, like we got HBO cameras here. So we know we're going to get people to come yeah. to our workshop. Yeah, the the like, most absurd one is, is when he hires the background actors to for the child's birthday party and then he realizes or you can't to realize that, that if, if they're speaking on screen they like get a higher day rate or something and yeah so, and then he's like just saved us tens of thousands yeah, of so dollars I, you know and it, it was, was really kind of weird but i saved you feel fifteen thousand dollars <laughs> and then the narration i mean the credits it's like he's the creator executive producer director but the other people are credited as writers. And so that must involve both the voiceover and sort of like coming up with the concepts or something. And one of them is the um, the sister of the woman who's Kimmy Schmidt, um, who was on The Office, um, who's a comedy writer. And so, you know, 
they they brought in some sort of big guns behind us. And so, I mean, the whole thing, like, what it, is this real? We at this twenty years into the reality TV era, like we all know, reality TV isn't real. But what parts of this are real, and the things that they're saying are fake? Maybe they're real, or vice versa. Yeah. So what did I mean? So you brought up Angela, the character who's wondering whether or not to uh, adopt a child. There was some speculation online that maybe this she's an actress and she was putting it on. On the second viewing, both I was sort of more sympathetic to her and thinking, there's no way. Like, this th this is such a strange combination of personalities of this sort of, like, extremely religious, born-again, Christian, hippy-dippy, sort of feely. Oh, real. I know people like that. Like, the... It was, the okay, but it was very particular. Essential oils. Like, yeah. that's her, that is very real. And it's, it she seems like, man, she, but she really is almost always, I mean, she signed up for this. It's a crazy, insane situation. And, you know, it's happening during the pandemic. And, but it, it I, she seems, you know, she's presented as a somewhat strange person with unusual beliefs, or at least the kind of things you don't really see. You don't see Christians portrayed in this particular way on TV very often. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, she, she really basically always like seems to <laughs> do the right thing more or less and she says some key lines um in the show which is like you know nathan lies all the time he's a, he's nathan a likes to manipulate people yes um and of course they they left that in um and yeah so i mean what did you make of her or what did you make of the question of like what is real and or quote-unquote real reality tv real or entirely staged or I bought that she was not an actress. I feel bad for her that not being in that situation, I think she was fine. I think she she knew what she was doing and she handled herself. She's an adult. I feel bad for her that that's her personality, that she's so rigid in things that the reason why she doesn't have what she says she wants, which is like a married life and kids is because she does she can't compromise. Um, like the idea of not letting your another person like not letting your kid have two faiths that they're raised on like and that's just i don't know that yeah no i mean that. it was it, she's just she's unnecessarily rigid and then she's kind of acting like oh you know the, this perfect thing just hasn't happened for me yet it's like it's not gonna happen if that's how you're acting you're not the only person in a situation and then god forbid you have a child and you have to like take them to the doctor or something. And the doctor is like, you, you know, they need a vaccine or antibiotics. And then, or you have to make a, a compromise with the person, the child's father. It's like, you're screwed lady. <laughs> right. I mean, on rewatching. So in the second episode, she makes her first appearance and then they bring in this guy um, who, you know, is a set up as maybe he will, he will join the show as, the father figure and he seems to be vibing with her on various levels and mm -hmm. he is also a sort of out there christian type person like pot smoking christian kind of guy and at first you're like oh like maybe this is perfect they they they're, they seem like similarly weirdos but then it's revealed like how much worse he is and how he seems like legit like really off his rocker and is obsessed with numerology and numbers and and and, and he has no more universe he has no morals or sense of responsibility. 
So that's not going to. And he crashed work. his car. And you know, I I only realized this on rewatching. So he says this line for like four times that he crashed his Scion G two at 100 miles per hour or something. The name of the episode is Scion, um, and it's also about creating a child. Uh, so I thought that was that was clever. Oh, you, but you just got that. I just <laughs> I just got that this time. Um, but yeah, and so it's like he's maybe the. If you put Nathan aside, he's sort of the most villainous. Although, although I don't know, the guy, the anti-Semitic guy who was trying to get his his inheritance from his grandfather is also, um, you know, you know not what I love. I, I loved how like Nathan is showing Nathan going through the situations where he's running a, running into anti-Semitism, like sort of unexpectedly, like you're going around the corner, and then all of a sudden, like like the ghost of Mel Gibson or whatever is the specter of Mel Gibson is popping yeah. up. Okay, th that's funny because like that's going to happen, right? Then he finds the Hebrew tutor. And you're thinking this woman, like she's so smart, she's got it together, she's right, she's gonna help him get the courage of his convictions. And then it shows them later having their their donuts, and she starts going off on this like Zionist rant, and you're like, oh my god, no, no, back yeah, up. No, she's, <laughs> too yeah, far. she seems to be somewhat more grounded in reality. And then there's this part where her he's driving up. And he says something to her like, do you want to sort of rehearse this? And she says, no, I like to shoot from the hip. So so she's the antithesis of the character, Nathan, who, you know, plots out every possible thing. And this woman's like, I'm going to improvise it. You know, it's it's funny also, like, I assume Nathan Fielder came out of like improv comedy because that's where like all funny people come out of these days. So he must actually be, he's obviously a very good improviser, but like, in, I don't you know, know, I know, you, I mean, you can't plan out like that sort of thing, like shooting, it's sort of shooting from the hip like after you practiced the general skills for a long time. Um, but yeah, and then it turns out that she's like, you know, an ultra Zionist, but you know, in a way she's like, sadly sort of, if you put her on the spectrum compared to some of the other crazy people, like in the spectrum of American Zionists, like she is not as crazy as other American Zionists could be, but she seems what was sort so of- What funny was watching him react to that. And then they let the episode end with her just talking over the credits and talking about how, you know, you need, if you have this platform, you need to use it to promote Israel. And he doesn't know what to say. He's, uh, well, I just, I like, he can't even say something totally benign. Like I have some issues with the way the Israeli government does things. Like he doesn't even, he can't even get that out, let alone what he really thinks, which I'm sure is much more standard leftist, you know, stuff, which is which who, not I shocking. Mean, yeah, who knows what his- his what age. his views of politics or Israel are, but they. Well, I think I mean, it was. I think it became pretty clear the way he he reacted, the way he ended the. He wanted to end the episode with that being like, "Isn't this funny? He's gotten himself in this situation." It started with, "I love Mel Gibson," and you know the Jews are going to burn in hell, and then ended with like the Palestinians are basically like getting themselves killed to blame Israel on purpose. Yeah. And he's like, ah, <laughs> it's yeah. like, he can't, he can't win. He can't find himself in a social situation that isn't terrifying to him because he keeps being sort of like batted between extremes. Um, and because he doesn't have any convictions that he's willing to, to live, he's just sort of bouncing bouncing between and not knowing where to land which is what the joke of the show is right i love yeah. that i thought that was so funny they must have they must have just been crying when that woman started talking being like oh my god i'm so glad she said this <laughs> it was a perfect bookend to the mel gibson stuff and to the the stage other stage the stage mom who was telling her kid like He's like the Jews are going to burn in hell. And she's yeah, like, that. So that's in the right. next the next episode. Yeah, the next he's episode? like debriefing the child who yeah. he had 
been like secretly, you know, educating in the oh tenets of Judaism and stuff. And then he's like, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going to burn in hell. Like, that, you know, that's, that's good. You're going to be in heaven. I'm going to be in hell. So that is extremely silly. But yeah, I mean, you know, that episode was like much more Jewish content than you see on television almost ever. Um, yeah. And so like, I, you know, I, I don't know, maybe someone will write like five or 10 years from now, like what was really happening behind the scenes. But like, you know, he couldn't have planned from the beginning to bring in this Jewish aspect because like maybe he didn't realize how hyper evangelical Christian the woman involved was. And so like it wouldn't make sense if there was it was sort of like neutral that he really cared this much. And then I, I don't know, it's 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 really something. But the there was a line that really resonated with me, which was him saying um, he hadn't been to synagogue services in years because it's so boring. Because um, it's so boring. Yeah. And I was like, <laughs> wow, I felt like finally I feel seen referenced by, you know, my connection to my faith um, represented. And then when the he shows it, it really does look boring. So, no, that's what, especially, I mean, the, the little kid actor who's brought in says, I'm like, did you speak English? And <laughs> I, but yeah, it, you know, a conservative, that, that is what parts of at least the conservative um, synagogue service are like. Um, okay. So, it, what did you make of the final sequence or the final sort of turn in the final episode? where Nathan decides to um, embody Remy's mother. What, what did you make of that? And because I'm still, after a few viewings, I'm not sure what that was supposed to mean, especially the very ending. I'm not sure. What are your thoughts? Well, I mean, it seemed like a, like a, just a logical continuation as much as the show can be logical of what he was doing the whole time right? That he felt guilty. His character feels guilty about how things turned out with Remy, that Remy became attached to him. And then he's wondering, well, the mom seems confident that the kid is going to be okay. How can she know? And the mom's trying to tell him, I just know, you just know when it's your kid. And he's like, I don't know about that. So in order to understand that, I need to get into that situation where I'm the mom and this kid is the kid. It's like, it's the same thing he's been doing the whole time. And then he does that thing where he's like i'm your dad the kid's like no that's not the kid tries to like breaks character and tries yeah, like so what did you and what yeah so that's the very very end and then well, the that's five his character like needing like he's like i need love and affirmation right it's he did that in nathan for you too with that that scene with the actress in the smokers aloud scene where he gets he's her saying to say i love, I love you, you over and over again 11 times you know, he's like, say it again. She's like, I love you. And he gets like kind of, he gets like more convincing every time. And he right. starts like crying. And it's the same thing. He's like, I'm going to use my show. My, this character is going to use his show and his power to get people to tell him that he is seen and valid. <laughs> did you, how much of Nathan for you did you watch? Because you didn't really watch it before this came out, but you watched some of it after seeing it. Yeah. So did you I get to like. Okay, did you get to the final, like, crazy, like, two-hour finale thing? I have not done that one okay. yet. I was like, two hours? That's a really long time for Nathan for you, so Yes, I and it's, I mean, it, it, seeing that as sort of a bridge between the two shows makes sense. And if, I'd be interested in what you think about it if you do get to it. But there is an aspect of that, if I'm remembering correctly, like, he basically hires a sex worker to come in and like hang out with him. I can't remember why exactly. And then it's very heavily implied that like they actually are sort of falling for each other, but also like that this could be fake because it's television and you want to believe that like people end up together and happy. Um, so that level, you know, the 
phoniness aspect of what's happening versus um, playing with realities you know, plays a part of that as well. And there's a running theme in Nathan for you of him being totally inept with women and like, but also extremely horny and like hoping that any situation could somehow result in him getting with a woman. And, and, and being a guy who's such, his character is a guy who's such a loser that he has to use his power. The only way he can connect with a woman is by using his power. Like in the dumb Starbucks episode where he's like, okay, now I need everyone to say who at this place of employment is attracted to each other. So it's like, he's like picking on the female employee and she handles it pretty well. Cause she's kind of like, this is obviously a joke, you know, but like, this is his character is like so pathetic that this is the only shot he has at even having a woman look into him, look at him is by putting himself in a position of power over them. But since he's since he's critiquing that and he's making fun of it, he's making it into a joke, it never offends me. It never really bothers me. The only time I was ever uncomfortable watching any of this was that little kid being upset and having it be on TV because the kid can't consent to that. Like a child cannot consent to that. Right. It's one thing now to be to have the only thing that's shown is your acting because you're acting, but those are his real emotions. Like when people post videos on social media of like their kid being upset, um, or of them like God forbid like pranking their kid. Mm-hmm. Ugh, I hate the pictures of kids crying in Santa's lap. Like I hate all that. I don't think that kids their emotions are so complicated to them. They're not a joke, and like I. I don't think he's making a joke out of those kids' emotions, but it just makes me feel so uncomfortable. But other than that, like, as far as adults go, I feel like are pretty much fair game, which is why when they when they kept every episode, they kept having the child actors. I'm like, I really don't want to feel like, I don't want to feel like, I just want it to be adults he's fucking with. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and I guess that's why maybe that, is why they made the final episode as it was to to bring that to the fore that you know there were these kids involved who are not old enough to understand really what's happening um there were a couple moments that i thought were fascinating that i just want to mention maybe and get your reaction to one was like okay so one was you know (laughs) he goes down to right we did really talked about the fielder method actor studio but he goes to los angeles for a couple weeks comes back you know the child is aging three years every week and now the child is a teenager and he realizes that it would make more sense for the kid to be like surly that dad has been gone for nine years and so he's not gonna be happy and and then actually i mean another big theme of the show is not just parenting but like fathers in general and absent fathers because um the woman has has an absent father and she blames her substance abuse issues on that and right so anyway so he played up that the kid becomes so bad that he uh has an overdose and and only on second viewing did i catch that you can see that there's apple cider vinegar next to him as he's overdosing so that like you know it was um baking soda and and vinegar was like what was coming out of his mouth uh and if you see a like fully unrolled condom just (laughs) next to him so there's like throwing every possible thing that a kid could do bad but then he, <laughs> he he gets he gets loaded into an ambulance. The you know fifteen year old actor gets loaded into the ambulance. Then he he escapes and runs off into the woods. And then they show <laughs> then they show him at a park with like his other deadbeat friends. And he sees Nathan's there watching. He sees him. He gets into a, a slide on the playground and emerges as the little boy once again. And that's like a moment of movie magic 
And I was sort of like blown away by it. And then they immediately undercut it by showing that the guy is still hanging at the top of the thing and pulls himself out and says, did we get it at the end? What's, what did you make of that? Especially as someone who has young children. Um, well, I mean, like it, it, he was, he successfully surprised me. If he's terrified of, of boring his audience and having things feel formulaic, um, no matter how many times he tricks us, it keeps working. So, you know, I just got to, I guess, congratulate him on that. It was like something from a cheesy movie or something, or yeah, it's something, you know, the return to childhood, like the, the teen has been corrupted and then returning to childhood innocence and they're showing it in this artful way and then just immediately showing how fake it is and the, but the whole thing was fake to begin with because these are all actors so that was really something but then also also the um the turn from rehearsing a possible future to rehearsing the past and trying to figure out where things went wrong which happens in the final episode or final two episodes and then the actress who is playing um playing the woman who i've named just went out of my head um, angela the actress who is playing angela and they go through over and over again, try to use like, where did I go wrong? And that is also like, you know, something that every person thinks about is their life. Like, what was the key? What was a, not just like the key mistake of my life, but like, how could I have done this differently? And it, they play it out over and over again. And every time it's the same result. So there's something about like, I don't know, he's saying something about like fate or something. I, I feel like in that, or, you know, obviously there's a dream of changing your past that could never be realized, but whatever, however he tries to play it, even in his crazy simulacrum that he's totally in control of, it's showing that, you know, he would have screwed this up anyway. And so I, there was something I thought kind of profound about both of these, both of these scenes. And, and then that is undercut because the camera pulls out and you see they're not even in the house. They're on the soundstage and like the fakeness is shoved back in your face. Every time they pull out and show that they're on the soundstage, it tricks me every time. Or the part with the snow where he's like, winter is very expensive to maintain. Yes. Like, what is he talking about? Is he talking about like, because like you have to hire people to come and like scrape the ice off your windshield, but then he pulls back and there it's just fake snow. Um, yeah, it's actually quite a really beautiful, funny. it's like a, they must have had a drone or something. It's quite a beautiful shot. And you see it's like this perfect circle of the, the fake snow, but it actually was, it's like the fall still in, in Oregon. It's, it, it's really, and you yeah. know, it's like that David Lynch scene. It's like, you know that he, everything is fake and he's messing with you and it works every time because he's so good at it. Yeah. And his, and his editors, and I know he does a lot of the editing too. He like oversees the process or whatever, but like, they're really good at that sleight of hand. It's, well, he's a magician, right? Like that's his that was yes. his first thing. That's part of his origin body. story is that he learned to do magic tricks and was like a teenage magician or something. And then there's so a moment is... with the teen son where he's like, do you want to see a magic trick? And the son yeah. says something like, I'm not a fucking kid. I don't want to see a magic trick. And that, you know, gets back to like the Willy Wonka, like, you know, creating something. And he, he's pulling off various illusions throughout this, <laughs> throughout this series. Say, like, I haven't watched a show in a long time where I felt like I was being entertained by a magician. Like sometimes when you're, well, sometimes when something's really artfully done or when you're reading something, remember, I remember like when I was reading Cloud Atlas, I was like, this guy is a magician. Uh -huh. Like, how does he keep doing it? You know, um, how is he linking these stories together? That was, that's the thought I had watching the rehearsal. Like, well, he's really, he's doing little magic tricks at me. And even though I know he's messing with me, I, I, I have full buy-in every single time I'm back for it. I don't want to know how, I don't want to know what's coming. I just want to be surprised. And, and he pulls it off. 
So. Okay, yeah, that's very well put. And, you know, if you're watching a magic trick, you know that, or you probably know that magic isn't real and that you're being deceived, but you're like just the brilliance of the deception. You're delighted by what how they pull it and off. And maybe what, you want to know. That's what he loves. That's what yeah. he loves about magic, not just doing it, but but watching it. Like I heard him talking about how he loves to go to the magic castle in LA, mm. which is like this cheesy place where you can go and see magic and you know, sometimes it's not good and sometimes it's really great. You have to like be invited. Right. My husband's dream is to be invited to go to the magic castle <laughs> by some magician nerd. Um, but you you want to be in that suspended disbelief place where you're watching something that you know is fake happen, but for a moment you forget that and then you you get surprised. So if, Right, if but he, he's showing, you know, in those scenes that I, that I thought were sort of like, you know, cinematic coups or something, he's immediately showing. It's like he pulled off the trick and then he immediately shows you that like, you know, he saws the woman in half and then two seconds later shows you it was two women all along sort of thing. He's like pulling and back to re reveal the artifice immediately. Right. And the fact that he turns that because with his little, with his timing and everything is able to make that funny where you're laughing. Like when he pulled back and showed the snow, the fake snow, I burst out laughing. And my son was like, what are you laughing at? And then I had to explain, because he was like, is that that kid's real dad? Why did he call them their fa his fake family? And so I explained it to him and he was like, why would he do that? I'm like, I don't know. I, <laughs> this is not something you could explain to a nine-year-old. Like we're at the point where he can watch The Simpsons and he gets the jokes. Every once in a while I have to explain one. Uh -huh. But this is like, this is uh, why we're, I mean, we're, we're adults and we're, grappling with you know what, what is actually happening on this thing yeah it's definitely post 18 sort of like it is he's like i'm like yes it is stupid this is very stupid like i have to agree with you on that <laughs> i mean part, yeah, part of the brilliance is the commitment to the bit the commitment to the stupidity and that yeah that they you know spent hundreds of thousands of dollars to replicate the bar down to the exact thing for this one totally insignificant you know person's not insignificant I love that dilemma so much. of this think, strange person because i love bars i love that he did that and how he feels so comfortable in the bar i'm like that's how i would feel in the bar like that's the dream man <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and then he's the part where he turns into an actual bar, which, so the, I mean, one thing I I would like to know eventually about this is like, okay, so the first episode must have been shot before the pandemic, and then there must have been a gap of time when the pandemic happened, where they must have scrambled their plans, and maybe that's why they end up mostly spending time at a rural house um, and not walking around the, in the real world, but sort of like, you know, where were the decisions made, and, and the part where he turns into an actual bar and has this ridiculous logo of like Nate's la Lizard Land or something that must have cost ten thousand dollars. But I made it much better <laughs> to make. But like maybe there was an idea that there'd be like a whole episode of him running the bar or or something like that, and then it didn't end up working out. So there must have been a lot of things. Yeah, they 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 shot like for months and had all the stuff, and then they condensed it into six you know half hour episodes. And so there must have been other things that they tried didn't work out. You know, well, what, what, what were those spend... things? Didn't he spend like nine months learning how to become a tightrope walker? Yes, that's a, that's, I mean, yeah, how much that's, that's a crazy episode. The thousands of dollars and hours that you would spend doing like that's, I mean, which is of course part of the joke, right? Like that. Yeah. And, what and if the, a guy, the whole premise is what if a guy did this? What if a guy reacted like this in this situation? Uh -huh. Like, yeah, that would be pretty weird, huh? Well, let's, <laughs> let's watch it. 
Yeah. Have you, so have you seen the tightrope walker episode? Cause it's, I haven't. No, I just, it's, the premise is that he's, he's pretending to be someone else tightrope walking. So this guy can impress a woman basically. Um, and so that he, you know, teaching himself this ridiculous skill that's actually legitimately dangerous. And it's not, you know, the idea is that, so someone else will be confused and think he's being someone else. So it's, it's like so many le- like weird layers removed from reality um yeah it's really something okay you know we've we've gone on a while and it it was announced they're gonna do a season two like i don't you know they must have ideas but how are they gonna escalate this into something new who knows um do you have any (laughs) any any additional thoughts you want you want to you want to add before we wrap up i don't think so except that um I'm not sure that where I get the, uh, the, there's sort of a meme on Twitter that like he has a very powerful sex appeal. I don't really yes. that. You're not feeling that? <laughs> I mean, I find him a blank. Like he's, I guess he's cute, kind of, but where are people seeing sexuality in there? I don't know. That's the kind of his character has no sexuality. Right. Like yeah, that's he, he has a creepy lack of sexuality, like a child, right? Like the way, like if a child were a man, it's funny that people are either locating something there that I'm not privy to, or they're like grafting it on to him. Good for them though, because like I'm all about having a crush on an unexpected source. But yeah, um, I I, so I mean, just don't see it. It enough. is interesting. The 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 like only real press he did for this, as far as I know, was this New York Magazine cover story, which he which he's posed shirtless on the cover of, of New York <laughs> Magazine. It's like you know Nathan exposed or something. A great picture. So there is some there does seem to be an organized attempt to turn him into some sort of of you know figure like this. I mean, as a uh, late thirties Jewish man with graying hair, I I was like you know glad that my you know my type was was being identified as as sexy online but yeah i don't he's such he's such an off-putting oh no this guy. is not a that type isn't sexy because that <laughs> is my type i just created him so yeah yeah I, I mean i saw people saying like him you know him dandling a, a, a an infant or something was making people feel like oh like i want him to bear my children sort of thing but it's undercut so many times. And then what he actually ends up doing to the children, <laughs> you know, I don't know if there's that many people who watched all six episodes and were still like, Nathan Field, I want to have your babies. That that would be an odd position. I ultimately, I just become too practical um, for that one. Whereas yeah. I believe like Mark Ruffalo, for example, would be a wonderful father to my children. <laughs> you know? um, yeah, it's, but it is, I mean, maybe some part of it is like, I don't know, like sort of the the mastermind or the puppet master sort of thing. I mean, the, another cinematic precursor to this is, is Truman Show in a way. And then, you know, he is both like he is Truman participating, but also he's the um, the Ed Harris character, you know, the godlike character. And there's a couple different times where, yeah, I mean, God is <laughs> God is referenced in the show, but there's other times of there's a moment where um, Angela is praying and it's you see what she's saying. She's whispering it to herself, but you see what she's saying in the subtitles. And it's something like, like, dear God, please like use Nathan to enact your will. He thinks he knows what, like, he thinks he's doing this, but I know that you're doing it. Um, And that's, you know, that is an interesting thing to think about. Mm -hmm. 
you know, considering your one's religious beliefs and like who is who has the power in this situation, and if there's a god that show, it's Nathan Fielder. And then there's, I mean, did actually we? Well, and then get... that's nicely, nicely bookended by the last scene that Angela has, where they're talking at the park, and she says she's talking about how you have to forgive yourself. She she'll forgive him because Jesus said you have to forgive seven times, forgive someone seven times, seventy times. Yeah, and that you also have to forgive yourself. When he's looking at her like, what the hell are you talking about? Right, <laughs> because he has he doesn't have this sense of like cosmic forgiveness. He has guilt and a sense of responsibility for everything. And she's saying what is actually the correct thing, which is you have to forgive yourself and you have to forgive other people easily because if you don't, life is going to be very difficult for you. Um, and so she's right about that. I don't think that she has that charitable of a perspective on everything else you know, because of her narrowness um, and her stridency. But she mm -hmm. was right in that scene about forgiveness. And I like how they gave her that as the, the end thing. It's, it's very, it was a kind way to end things with her. And she's telling Nathan something that he needs to hear. And of course he's like, I, what? <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and, and about. one, one possible interpretation of that is like, Jewish versus Christian, you know, senses of that's of the that's the responsibility and, and forgiveness, um, and sort of an Old Testament versus New Testament guilt. things. Guilt and and not, I mean, that's the stereotype, right? Is that Judaism is associated with guilt or something, right? Or like Catholicism, which is, yeah. Whereas evangelical Christianity is more like you don't have to feel bad; you just have to keep renewing your faith with Jesus Christ. And then actually I've been, I've spent some time in evangelical church. That stereotype is true. Um, all you have to do is just turn around and be perfect again for a few hours. <laughs> and then you just repent and then do it all over again. You're great. Mm -hmm. That's, that's true. That's actually what they tell you. That's, that's interesting. <laughs> she also has a line that actually I noted down where she says to him, not everything's make believe some things are real. And the thing she's talking about is, um, Satan controlling Google or Google being satanic. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's, yeah, there's so many things in here. I think people are still going to be watching this a decade from now and be like, what the hell? How do, you like, sound like you need to write your senior thesis on this show. <laughs> I, I'm sure there will be, you know. It's tragic that you're not being given the opportunity. Television studies, like dissertations written on. You could probably just do one for each episode. Like there's, <laughs> it's a deep text. Um, okay, maybe we should wrap it up there. Um, okay, so you are... On Twitter, if you want to, do you want to share your uh, Twitter handle so people can find your thoughts and, and your occasion, yeah, just, occasional piece of writing? It's just my name, jo uh, Joanna Mang, J-O-A-N-N-A-M-A-N-G. And I am also on Twitter, A-R-Y-H-W. You're, you're a great follow on Twitter. I, I recommend people um, follow you in general. And people can, you know, rate and review this episode and tell your friends and stuff like that. So thank you, Joanna, for coming back on. And you said once in future guest. And so I'd love yeah. to have you on again sometime soon. Um, and thanks Talking to- Talking about TV. <laughs> That's what I like to do. And thanks to all the listeners out there. And we'll see you again next time.